Just remember, there's a special place in hell for women who don't help each other. Welcome to A Special Place in Hell, the podcast where an aging Gen X author and a self-hating millennial activist come together to thoroughly and conclusively solve our culture war problems with our combined wit, wisdom, and most importantly, lived experiences. I am the aging Gen X author, Megan Daum, and with me is the self-hating millennial, Sarah Hader. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Megan. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. Very good. How are you? Good. I'm okay. Um, yeah, we're, we're recording this on a Saturday because uh, we both have such busy lives that uh, we can't do it during the week. I had a little bit of a, a little bit of a crisis, professional meltdown this week. Uh, I just, as people know, as well, as my audience may know, I have two podcasts. This is my second podcast and I put the other one on hiatus Uh the unspeakable so I could concentrate on this and a couple other things I'm doing but I don't know sometimes I, I just feel like the the new creative economy is tyrannical mm-hmm. do you feel the same um I wouldn't know I'm new to the creative economy business it feels <laughs> tyrannical now maybe but maybe the old one was too well it's a new business for everybody but you I mean I feel like you I don't know. Do, have you always felt overwhelmed in your work ever since you entered the work the workforce? <laughs> um, not ever since I entered it. My first um, couple of jobs, you know, the part-time jobs I had and then um, the jobs I had out of straight out of college were fairly relaxed and easy, hmm. I thought. Um, like were they office jobs? Like what kind they of They were office jobs, yeah. They were office jobs and I just felt like they didn't work me hard enough or they were just <laughs> underutilizing me or something. I don't know what was going on, but I would get what I needed to do done within an hour, an hour and a half. Oh. And then read the rest wow. of the time or you know, <laughs> just find a way to pass the time. I don't I don't uh hundred percent understand what was going on there, but um uh, I definitely felt like I was too, I shouldn't have been in that role. It was too, it was too uh, easy. Oh, okay. Um, so you made your life hard by starting a nonprofit. Then I started a nonprofit and and turns out there's just a lot of work and not a lot of money. Um, <laughs> but I think I enjoy that, you know, like I, I, I do think that I, I, I like working hard and I, I enjoy yeah. it. I get satisfaction from it and I don't know what I would be like relaxed every time in my life that I've had little to do or just like a normal amount of work to do it I don't know it it gets it it somehow causes me to be worse at everything I don't know I don't know how to explain it. oh worse at everything or like Like, anxious like if I have maybe both yeah I mean I'm always anxious working hard is a way of dealing with the anxiety yeah me too it's a it's a good cope i think it's good Um, for us it's not good for the people around us necessarily (laughs) no um but i remember in college i always used to overload my my schedule um because i wanted to graduate early and i did um but i i the one semester that i had a normal schedule like normal amount of hours i did the worst in my my gpa oh like tanked that 
that semester. Anytime I was just like, just totally overwhelmed uh, with an internship and tons of work, um, I did well. I don't know. Hmm. <laughs> Some people thrive on pressure. Yeah, no, I do. It's it's hard though for the people around you. I mean, I think most of most people who know me intimately or extremely well will just say like, "Oh yeah, she's never going to relax. Like she's uh-huh. never going to go on vacation. It's not going to happen." I will not I I haven't I I will not take a vacation unless I <laughs> am in a relationship with somebody who forces me to. When was the last time you took a vacation? Probably when I was married. Really? Yeah. <laughs> My whole Wait, marriage was a vacation. Was the entire marriage was a vacation. <laughs> um, uh, like five years ago, I got divorced. Um, I mean, but it depends on what you mean by a vacation. I would, I would like, I mean, I, I can travel. I've certainly traveled. I love traveling for work. That's my very favorite thing. Mm-hmm. Um, when somebody else is paying for it mm. and I don't have to like decide what to do. But uh, no, I have a very hard time with it. Yeah, uh, me too. Me yeah. too. I have a hard time enjoying. Well, because the vacations are too long. You know, I can relax for a couple of hours. I can relax for an afternoon. <laughs> yeah. And I'll enjoy it, you know, and then, then I'm like, OK, this is OK. I, I'll Enough. let it all go and, you know, get my nails done, whatever. This is nice. <laughs> but then, yeah, enough. I have I have work. I have work to do. <laughs> yeah. I. So, I mean, the funny thing about it is so like part of my meltdown this week, I just I have not been writing. So I have been as my unspeakable audience knows I've been trying to do this professional pivot for the last few years. And I've been, I've been a writer for more than 20 years and I've written books and I've had publishers paying me money and I've had agents negotiating my contracts and it's, you know, extremely lucky to have all that in place. Um, and it's not like I got rich from it, but I, you know, I was, sometimes I was very comfortable and other times not, but it was just, that was the structure of my professional life. And I have not um, written anything really in in more than a year. Like I have not, I've written show notes and I've written like, you know, a couple book reviews probably for the New York Times, but I have not written like the real kind of writing that I do um, for, for a long time. And I was thinking about why that might be. And I mean, part of it is that I've been busy with this other, these other forms of content but I really like I've been very become very self-conscious about writing about myself the older I get. I used to be known for writing about myself. I was like the personal essayist. And I I think there's just something either I feel it's uncouth or I feel like it's nobody's business or I feel like my life is too boring. Hmm. So I don't know. Uncouth. Uncouth. Why I now? I just think like just because of your age. This is internal. It's internalized ageism. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, yeah, it's kind of like when, you know, when, when I was younger, I would write about my life in this way that I think young people do, which is as if nobody ever experienced the world the way you're experiencing it right now. <laughs> like I am the first person to walk down this avenue in this particular way. And I, you know, it's, that's actually what good art comes from. Like that kind of openness to the world and naivete about your own uniqueness um is actually very creatively fruitful but when you kind of wise up to yourself i think that you have to kind of find other ways to be creative or or push past your own kind of lack of self-regard maybe Mm. 
I don't know. Like, but you don't really write about yourself on your Substack, Mm-mm. not at all. And I don't enjoy it. You don't um, enjoy writing about myself. Oh, okay. I mean, I I could think I have the same problem, which is why would anyone be interested? I guess. Mm. Um, I remember I was told I was a couple of people I knew were advised that I should be a little bit more open and and you know share my my life with you know, my followers or whatever. And I was like, this is embarrassing. I'm embarrassed to do this. <laughs> but that's what they like. But that's what they like. I, I, but I, I can't understand why people would like it, even though, even though um, I totally understand from the other side, like the people that I am following and I'm a fan of or whatever. I love it when they disclose like some personal little tidbit. They'll be like, oh, I have tinnitus or whatever. And I'm oh, like, even, even tinnitus. <laughs> I have tinnitus. I, <laughs> I have. I have. Do you think I should write about my tinnitus? Yeah, I could do that. I mean, it's just these little things that make the. I think it's it. So it's part of the parasocial relationship that I yeah. formed, with, you know, with these people, and then I know this little bit about them, and it makes me feel closer to them, and makes them feel more human to me and more relatable. Um, and so I, I, I get this like warm and fuzzy feeling, um, and I feel more affectionate towards, you know, a personality that discloses um, yeah i mean and you're not embarrassed for them when they write about themselves right no no i mean mean, rarely it's it has i'm trying to think of a time where i've been embarrassed for somebody i mean there are overshare well there are yeah there are those people (laughs) yes they They exist confess yeah yeah a little too much um but uh it's usually if it's like what they're confessing is itself embarrassing, like in the sense that they misbehaved and right, you know, and then and then are posting about it as if they didn't misbehave. Yeah. You know, th- then it can be embarrassing. Um, but usually these little things that make them feel more human that I think it, it, they might be. Oh, this is boring, but it, it's interesting I, for, for it for the listener. I know. Yeah, I, it's something I talk about when I teach a lot, like this notion of confessing versus confiding. So mm. like when you write about yourself, you want to confide, you want to give the reader the sense that you're letting them in on a secret um, as opposed to confessing, which is you're just sort of dumping everything up upon them. And, you know, when you confess, you're really asking somebody to absolve you or, you know, respond in some way. So I, mm-hmm. confiding is an act of generosity and confession is, you know, you're, you're putting the onus on the other person, but, but still, I don't know. Yeah, I just I had you know because I'm trying I'm creating this um, this community this online community the the unspeakeasy which is I'm excited about it but it's totally out of my comfort zone and just knowledge base and I just had this moment the other day where I was sitting in front of the computer um, actually with somebody who was helping me uh, and like just tr- trying to like look at all the pieces and I just had this moment where I was like I fucking hate this. I hate this. Like, I'm a writer. What am I doing? Like, I am a writer. I'm supposed to be writing things. And I'm starting to feel like almost physically, it's like physically painful that I haven't written. Like, it's. I feel like I haven't been to the gym in a year or I've been just eating junk food. So I have to start writing again. But I, it's going, to be, and I'm not writing takes. See, that's actually what happened is I got so burned out on writing takes about the culture Mm-hmm. Um, and I was actually writing on Medium. A lot of people didn't read it, but I had a column on Medium. I was part of, you know, they had a stable of paid columnists and I was one of them. And so I was writing, um, you know, routinely uh, there and like pretty 
pretty robust pieces and um but they were about the the culture and what was going on and i just got utterly burned out on that mm-hmm. and then on top of that i didn't want to write about my personal life uh such as it was and so when you eliminate those two modes i don't really know what's left i mean i guess i could go out and do some reporting but <laughs> yeah <laughs> i'm yeah. too lazy to do that and what what's the point yeah in the culture war stuff it's it is only to me it's only useful and fun and, in, and interesting when i can use it as a jumping off point to discuss something more human you know like yeah a, 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 a social like pathology or you know something innate about um us as as sexual beings or right you know a, a broader shift in how we relate to the world and if i can if i can make if i can do that then the culture war is is fun and interesting otherwise yeah it's um on the on the take level, which is where where Twitter is, yeah. it, it is boring, and it's only it only makes you angry, right? Um, which is just not a worthwhile emotion, um, especially online. But people are doing it. People are you know talented writers are cranking out takes multiple times it. a day, of, a Glenn week Greenwald. if not a day. How is he? Glenn Greenwald is always constantly tweeting twitter threads well and he's also getting in fights with people on twitter and he's getting in fights and people and he's he's doing all i don't know where he's he he must be on some plus he has like a bunch of kids and a bunch of dogs (laughs) and Mm. a husband so Uh, i don't know the husband must do all the we should get him on the podcast and ask how do you do it all glenn how do you do it all? how do you balance balance it all Uh, yeah. So I don't know. It was just, yeah, it was a strange, I really was like, okay, I guess I'm going to have to start. I'm going to make myself right. And then I thought, well, maybe I should do a sub stack. Um, the other problem is I have a million, I have too many websites. I have like my author site and my teaching site and the unspeakable and now this other thing, whatever. So I feel like I need to, I I, I, I may, I'm going to consolidate. And then I may just like force myself to just write once a week or something on Substack about my life and I'll just put it behind a paywall. <laughs> so, so only people who really, really want to read it can read it. Uh, you know, the life of a, 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 a the gay divorcee, the, 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 un, the, uh, the, the lady, the, the Gen X, uh, lady about town. I'm not gay, by the way, that was a refer, that was a reference <laughs> no. to, uh, the, it was a, that's what they used to say in the 1930s. I think gay divorcee. No, I'm not gay. Um, not that it would be totally <laughs> fine. That, it would be that. fine. It would be fine if I were. It'd be better if I were. Frankly, it would be so much would better, be better if I were. I could because I the ladies love me. What can I say? Um, okay. <laughs> so what um what do we have to talk about today? Couple things. Um, shall we? I, I was thinking what we should do is we should like sort of go over what what we are going to talk about to some degree. So people can stop overview. listening now if they don't no, want to hear it. No, no, no. no to entice them to okay. be like, keep listening, okay. to, you know, get to the end of this um, because it's going to be amazing. Yeah. Oh yeah. You're gonna, not going to believe what happens next. The end. Okay. Um, so we were thinking uh, we're, we're going to talk about uh, a um, Washington post article um, that came out um, July 8th, so that's uh, a little more than a week ago, 
um, about people from elite backgrounds um, increasingly dominating academia. Um, but but uh, after that, we're going to what are we going to talk about? Porn. 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 We're going so, to talk about porn. Yeah, we're going to so get you're the, gonna we're going to get wait. the juicy stuff out of the way first, <laughs> which is academia, and then and then porn. Yeah. Um, and then maybe some maybe some gender stuff, maybe some dating app stuff. We'll see. Um, some of that could be left for our subscribers. Thank you for subscribing, by the way. I've been seeing the subscriptions yeah. come in, and it um, brings joy to my heart. People really, people are, <laughs> seem to be liking the show. Yeah. And, oh, and and um, the 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 one guy who. I'm assuming it's a guy. I think it is a guy mm-hmm. who gave us um, that low star. The guy ranking. who gave us two, two stars. Two stars. Yeah, he he sent a really nice email. Um, apologizing, outing himself, and apologizing, and 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 saying he would he would change it, which was really yeah, nice. He said he was going to sit with himself. He's going to apologize for what he did, and he's going to just learn, and he's going to do the work. <laughs> Yeah, he's yeah. not gonna. It was nice. I, I don't know if he actually. I didn't follow up on it. He may have um, not necessarily given us five stars, or he may. I don't know what he did exactly, but but the fact is, he gave us two stars, and then he continued to listen to the show. That's very interesting, actually. It's Didn't you yeah. give up. <laughs> well, this is what we were talking about before, though, because people who people hate listen for longer than they like listen sometimes. I man, Megan, I still can't intuitively. I still can't understand that. Yeah, um, I it's left over from like the talk radio days, back mm. when there was nothing. Yeah, I used to drive around uh, L.A. and listen to. Well, first of all, I listened to Tom Likas. Oh, this is a subject we should have sometime. Tom Likas was this uh, radio guy here in L.A., and he would have. You know, he was super misogynist, but in this way, you would find him fascinating. He would just t- tell these women what they had to do to get a guy and he was just brutal i mean everybody was a neanderthal and all women were like gonna trick men he was the original like she's gonna you know prick a hole in the condom and get pregnant so like gentlemen oh he would say things like guys she's gonna don't throw the used condom in the wastebasket in your bathroom because she will go in there and sneak in there and take it and put it in her and impregnate herself yeah so he was on the radio here and I used to listen to him. Uh, so that was a hate listen, but I mm. listened for hours and I mm. actually thought he was a really interesting figure. And I'm sure back, I think back in the day, I actually had the idea that I would do a profile of him for the New Yorker. That is how much things have changed. So anyway, thank you, Mr. Two Stars for upgrading your, your rating. Yeah. Okay. Um, Okay, so this Washington Post article, um, I wanted to talk about it last show, last week, um, but we didn't get around to it, um, because I thought it was really interesting. It's been a, um, an interest of mine to, I mean, people who follow my Substack who followed me on social media and, you know, heard me on various other podcasts know that I'm kind of obsessed with what's going on with our um, elite, um, and in particular, what's going on with our culture-making institutions. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so I've been following, uh, you know, the the data that's been coming out for some time um, that shows that in various ways, um, academia, you know, journalism, 
uh, are increasingly dominated by people from elite backgrounds. Um, and what that means is people from, you know, high socioeconomic status backgrounds, parents who would make a certain amount of money, parents who are highly educated compared to the rest of the population. Right. Um, and it's, it's, it's a fascinating thing to, to keep track of because it's, clearly getting worse <laughs> and it has been getting worse in some time mm-hmm. with you know for some time so this washington post article is just one of the many studies that have come out um to uh to to give some evidence to to what we've all sort of been feeling that something's going on there's a disconnect between what's going on in our social culture making institutions and you know quote unquote normal america um and so this this piece talks about um a study uh, that found that uh, you know that found that it, well in 1970 just one in five U.S. born PhD graduates in economics had a parent with a graduate degree. Now, two thirds of them do, um, according to a new analysis from the Peterson Institute for International Economics. Um, and the trends are similar in other fields, um, but economics specifically is off the charts. And this is sort of reflecting all these trends um, that we've been seeing. Um, I've been following other work by other academics um, that also track, you know, the socioeconomic roots of academic faculty. There was um, a paper that was written by uh, several people. I'm not going to name all of them, but um, Alison Morgan, Nicholas Laberge. It's called Socioeconomic Roots of Academic Faculty, and they surveyed like 7,000 U.S. faculty from eight different disciplines to see how. Uh, socioeconomic status shapes um, the the workforce in academia, and they asked them about their parents' level of education when they have ki- when when they were kids, and half of the faculty reported having a parent with a graduate degree, yeah, and nearly a quarter had a parent with a PhD, yeah, which is twenty five times the rate of U.S. adults, wow, um, which is crazy, right? That's crazy, and I you know, and I think of just anecdotally, I think of the. Uh, people in academia that I know, like faculty in academia, and I know quite a few. I think I'm one of outside. I'm one of the few people that, who outside of academia also knows a lot of academics mm. um, and is friends with a lot of academics. But it, getting to know many of them, it's it's uh, remarkable how many of them also have parents who were themselves faculty, <laughs> like yeah. at different institutions. Yeah, and um, it's you know it makes you think about. What's going on in this pipeline, um, and why is it that 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 certain fields have become uh, very e- either either impossible to enter um, or or to stay in sustainably for people from low socioeconomic backgrounds or 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 those without the proper cra- class credentials, mm-hmm. um, you know, having the right kind of uh, educated background, living in the right neighborhood, having the right political opinions, these kinds of things probably all go into uh, what's going on here. Um, And in the end, we have a culture making class uh, that is, you know, people who tell us, I mean, tell us, quote unquote, but right, but people who, who, who think about what we should be thinking about, people who um, find information for us and tell us this is what's important for you to hear and this is what's important for you to know yeah. that, that these are people that they're they're looking alike you know yeah. very much alike and that's not good do you think that part of the reason for this is that people people who pursue phds like 
their parents are encouraging them to do it because they also have PhDs and otherwise the parents would say like, why are you doing that? There's no money in it. You'll never get a job. Like it's just, it's not a very good career path for the most part. It doesn't pay well. It's one of these things like it's, it's, it's not a glamor profession as we think of it, but it is one of these high prestige, low paying kinds of professions. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. So well, the, the high prestige, low paying professions are the kinds of professions that only people, certain certain people can afford to get into. Right. In the exactly. So that's yeah. So they are elite professions, increasingly elite professions. And, and with with journalism, I wrote about this for my sub stack. Journalism is really bad, too. And there's um, some better data um, from the UK that goes into what's going on um, with journalists. Um, and I think I've covered it even in this, in this podcast, we've discussed it where, you know, uh, journalists um, increasingly come from elite backgrounds. Um, you know, the journalists are in, in the UK, for example, much more, much more likely to have gone to private school than the average person. Um, and then there's a bunch of other studies uh, that find that America's top newsrooms recruit interns from really a small circle of, elite colleges yeah um yeah and 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 they recruit interns just to be an intern you have mm -hmm. to have the Mm -hmm. means to work for free right 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 and 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 these are interns from you know cornell and yale and and that kind of thing and in elite journalists resemble they resemble senators billionaires you know like they 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 attend they resemble uh uh the elite class in a lot of ways so they, they might not necessarily be making a lot of money um, but they resemble them in a lot of other ways. They right. might resemble them in like in terms of family wealth as well. Yeah, and they're in the same social circles. This is something that Batya mm-hmm. Ungar Sargon talks about a lot. You know, mm-hmm. she's she wrote a book called Bad News, and she she talks all about how the working class has been left out of the entire conversation around the culture wars. But yeah, she makes a big point of saying that journalists used to be working class. That was that was a working class profession, the gumshoe reporter, that kind of thing, and now. Mm-hmm. They're they're hanging out uh, with wealthy people, even if they don't happen to be wealthy themselves. I sometimes think she overstates that, or mm-hmm. or at least doesn't make clear that there's a distinction between making a lot of money at this job yourself and hanging out with other rich people. But yeah, it's effectively yeah, yeah. She's, she's correct. I, I think she did like s- step over the line and and ju- just say something about how journalists are rich. Right. Which is not Which, true. <laughs> that, that, that pissed off a lot of journalists. Yeah, right, right. And that, that actually prompted my Substack post because, it, it, you know, a lot of people were saying, wait a minute, I make this much money and this is, you know, like, and I, I can barely afford to pay for it, blah, blah, blah. Right. Um, and they were right, you know, and she was she was technically wrong there. But but the spirit of her argument is that they're coming from wealthy backgrounds or, or at least stable backgrounds. Um, so they're coming from a certain kind of vantage point you know, point and, and a certain socioeconomic status already. Right. Um, and that, of course, that affects what they see, what they choose to focus on, what issues they tackle in the first place, not in, uh, and of course, how they choose to tackle them. Um, and it's, a, it's just kind of, it's sad to me that the people who are really bursting with, you know, woke fever who want, who find diversity problems everywhere they look, um, cannot or will not face, you know, what's going on here, you know, and they won't really take a look at why this is happening, this um, 
increased gap that's increasing over time of of the culture making classes and the average American. Right. Well, and again, if you are from a lower income or working class background, you're not going to pull yourself out of it by going into journalism or academia. You're going right. to go into finance. It's irresponsible. It's dangerous. Yeah, it is. I mean, I wouldn't. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't. I don't encourage anybody to do it regardless now. But yeah, you're going to go you're going to go a corporate route. You're going to go something, you know, that's going to make money. Uh, yeah, and not I, this other thing. And I don't have data for this. I tried to find it, and I mean, I didn't, I didn't spend a ton of time trying to find it. But uh, so maybe it's there. <laughs> but um, you're you're uh, a real journalist, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, that that would make me a real journalist in in, in terms of <laughs> the fact that I just perform a superficial research um, a search. Um, anyway, um, it from. From what I understand of the nonprofit se- sector, it's not too different. Um, so you have the kinds of people who you know don't have a lot of money, just want to give back, like feely people, like pe- people who are very caring um, and want to spend some time in this sector. That y- you see a lot of those, but you also see a good bit of people who, you know, maybe they're married to somebody uh, who's who's making a good income, and that's why they can afford to make nothing at this, you know, social cause nonprofit, um, you know, especially social cause nonprofit. I think they, 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 they definitely pay in prestige, um, foundations working for foundations right. that works that, that definitely pedals in a lot of prestige and you, you get access to some of the wealthiest people on the planet. Um, and you are not yourself, uh, a direct activist, but you are activist adjacent and you can feel good about, yeah, helping yeah, poor so women. Yeah, it's the best in, of both in, worlds. Yeah, you don't have to yeah. do anything, but you can yeah. feel virtuous. But yeah, right. And, and that that works specifically. Like the the foundation people. Those are those are um, I think similar to the same kinds of people who can afford to go into journalism. Right. Right. Well, what would your parents have said if you had wanted to go into academia? Um, the same thing they say now that have gotten into. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I went in a nonprofit where you're like, what are you doing? Um, and and the truth is, is that it is irresponsible of me. You know, it 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 was and is irresponsible of me. And I never planned on doing it for very long. It was always going to be a hobby until I saw that, you know, I was making a difference um, and a chance of maybe making some kind of an income. Um, but it was never for me something that I could afford to do for um, my whole life or even much of my life because I have parents who are going to need my help when it is time for them to retire, which is, you know, coming up. Um, So, you know, when I was going into this nonprofit thing, they, they, they kept the conversation. They were just baffled. Um, they, They didn't understand what I was doing or why I was doing it or how I could be in their eyes, irresponsible. Um, And they were totally right to, to think that. And I, you know, I, I, th- I definitely think they, they had a point and have a point, um, which is why I've been hustling and trying to have They're all these like, other Sarah, gigs. Get on your act together and do a Substack. <laughs> yeah. Well, fulfill I mean, <laughs> our American dream of becoming a Substacker. Um, yeah. Right. I mean, but I, I've, you know, I've, that's what, that's partially why I work as hard as I do because I, I can't, this cannot be the only thing that, that, that but this is pathetic okay but, but, but doing a podcast <laughs> and doing a Substack news- newsletter is is your um, your answer to to it's pathetic. so before i got into all this uh, my my 
my plan was to go to law school, which is a very okay. standard. I mean, that right. would that would have been the thing to do that would have made sense um, for me. It would have made sense in terms of my skills, but it, but also uh, I like I like working hard um, and I needed to make money. Um, so, yeah, yeah, it, they are not happy and they're right to not be happy. It is irresponsible. So you would have gone to law school and. Like I think I might court, still go you to would law have school. Been like we'll a, see how this works yeah, out. Yeah, I know exactly. <laughs> I, I'm I'm right behind you. So, but you would have done like corporate law, or obviously not. But you probably would have found yourself in like do gooder law, some kind of uh, yeah. No, that's defender what that's or, what you know something like that. I don't know if I hate this about myself or 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 like it. I think I do hate it about myself. Um, it, I I initially thought about yeah do gooder law, um, human rights stuff was was interesting to me immigration law but also like immigration as in like i do work for low-income families who can't afford to pay me mostly you know mm-hmm. mostly right. pro bono kind right. of thing um yeah so maybe i was never going to make a lot of money yeah i mean the thing too though i think one of the things that gets left out of the discussion when we talk about academia is it's not all elite places the vast majority of campuses are not elite schools. They're, they're public institutions. There are little colleges in the middle of nowhere that nobody's heard of. And, you know, they, those, all of those places have communities around them. I mean, my parents, for example, are from Southern Illinois. Okay. So, and that Illinois is a very long state. So we're talking like six, seven hours South of Chicago, like basically the South and Carbondale, Illinois, where Southern Illinois university is, was like the the cultural center that was my mother is from Carbondale and my father's from another town an hour or so away but you know for them to get out of there and my father was very poor and my mother I would say was you know probably that family was probably working class the university represented the way out actually like Mm. there was so little there there was coal mining Mm-hmm. and whatever mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so the only the way out of that kind of life and the way out of southern illinois was to be an academic for in in my in their minds somehow like my father mm. was completely unsuited to academia but ended up getting a phd a completely useless phd and being you know in in academia for a period of years and, you know, my mother it was very interesting, like growing up in Carbondale as an outsider to the university community, but having it like in her face all the time, all she wanted in life was to be like an, she thought, she, I think all she really ever wanted to be was an academic wife. Mm. Like, you know, she, she wants she, her idea of like a certain kind of house and what that would look like and certain kind of art on the walls. And, you know, this is stuff I've written about back, back when I used to write, um, I, I would mm. write, I wrote a lot about like, uh, the, the signifier of, of, you know, Persian rugs and, you know, fraying Persian rugs and, you know, abstract art on the wall. Uh, and so, you know, it was an aesthetic ambition, but, you know, so many of these smaller towns, the, the, the professors are not, you know, they're certainly elites compared to like working class people in that town, but much less so I think than, than we might imagine. I mean, there are professors who are making pretty small salaries and, Mm -hmm. you know, living pretty middle-class lives, like their kids are getting, you know, need financial aid to go to college, you know, that that kind of thing. Um, and, you know, there was an interesting moment actually. So I was at the Heterodox Academy conference in Denver last month, which is that's Jonathan Haidt's 
organization. Um, he started it for, you know, to, to increase viewpoint diversity on campuses. So a lot of academics came to this conference and a lot of journalists and podcasters. Sarah, you, sh- you should have been there, but I know you you have a busy life. I'm too busy. You would have had a great time. <laughs> um, but, you know, people- I wasn't invited. That's that's what I, I, I invited myself. I No, I believe I was a paying. I, I was I, I just paid. I was a paying customer. Batya Ungar Sargon was a was a panelist. You should you she shouldn't have had to pay. I know. Well, oh my God. well, uh, next year I'll be there. So um, but, uh, you know, a lot. One of the questions that constantly came up was, why, if, if all of these people in, in the administration and, you know, senior tenured faculty are fed up with the wokeness, how come nobody stands up? Why doesn't some, you know, dean, college president say enough is enough. Nobody has signed up for this. We're, we're done now. And Eric Smith, who um, he's a he's a professor of um of, of rhetorics, um, he's 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 a black guy. He's very critical of of critical uh, race Rutgers, theory. Yes, mm-hmm. no, he's at the College of York. No, oh, you're, oh, yeah, okay. he's at the College of York in Pennsylvania, and it, that is an example of a very. It's not an elite school. Most of his kids, they're almost all, I would think, first generation college students. But you know, we were in um, a, a private conversation. David Fuller from Rebel Wisdom did a live stream with the three of us, David and Eric and, and me, and. You know, we asked again, Eric, what is the reason that these people don't stand up? And he said, to be honest with you, they don't want to get disinvited from the cocktail party. They and let's but let's think about it this way. Most colleges are in small towns. They're in college towns. If you were in in in, you know, if you're teaching at Grinnell College in, in Iowa and that's I think it's Grinnell, Iowa. That's the town. It is a small town in the middle of nowhere. Sorry, I shouldn't say middle of nowhere because people get mad about that. But it's not Iowa City. Like Iowa City is is New York City compared to Grinnell, Iowa. If that if your entire community, your life revolves around this academic community, you do not want to get cast out because you are standing up for free speech or for a problematic speaker or something like that. It is not in your interests. And I think that we tend to, when we think about people on these campuses, we think about people teaching at Harvard and Columbia and Princeton, where if you get on the outs with your colleagues, you can walk down the street and hang out with some other people. And that's very rarely the case. Those are the mm. exceptions. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just, anyway, I wanted to say, I, wanted I, to I say think that. people underestimate just, um, and even I underestimate, despite talking about it all the time and thinking about it all the time, um, how much uh, social pressure and uh, just the desire to belong and, and, and conform affects people, even people who you, you think they would, <laughs> that they would be immune to it. Yeah, I know. Or... <laughs> well, no, or they act like they're immune to it. I mean, that's sort of almost part of their shtick. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then they're the most susceptible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it... And I don't think that this is this is not a problem that can be um, adequately solved overnight because people don't even want to admit. Uh, you know, you can talk about unfair legal restrictions, and you don't feel ashamed to say that I couldn't do X or Y because it is illegal, you know, in my country to 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 say this or that. Um, but there's a shame in admitting that. I didn't say X or Y, not because it was illegal, not not necessarily even because there was a huge threat of me getting fired, but just mm-hmm. 
I didn't want to seem like that guy. <laughs> yeah. Um, but unfortunately, and so this, so it's kind of a more silent problem. Um, and it's, it's, it's a harder one therefore to, to, to tackle. And maybe, maybe we just can't. Well, it's insidious. Um, Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, yeah. I'm surprised that more colleges, I mean, the, to me, it seems like maybe the indirect way of, of, of solving this is for colleges at a, at a very top level to be making an effort to recruit conservative faculty. Um, or, you know what I mean? Like, I, I mean, you're Can you imagine but, the protests, the student <laughs> protests? But, but that, ha- that has to be, you know, there, there, there have it's it's what you said about you know what you can do if you're not invited to some party in 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 New York or at a big university you have other parties you can coach and people need options um uh and and just having that friendly opposition is so important in terms of just intellectual honesty because we don't smell bullshit when it's it's what we want to hear <laughs> so right. it's important to right. have when that when your whole that... house smells like bullshit you can't smell the end of individual turd in your yeah, I, living room. That was um you know yes. I was <laughs> sorry. That's why I'm you, here. You made it um really beautiful. Yes. Um thank you. Oh well yeah but so it you know um it, it makes it harder for to, to to detect the bullshit when it does show up because it it aligns with your politics entirely. This is what you want to believe about the world anyway. Even if you're smart enough to know better, um it will slide past your view. And that's why it's important to have, you know, some conservatives on staff, some yeah. libertarians on staff that who are, who are ideologically predisposed to do the opposite. They're they're predisposed to find problems, you know, maybe even where they don't exist, but to 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 look at everything that you do with uh, a sense of skepticism. That's very important. And I don't I to me, it seems like this is the obvious solution. <laughs> the obvious thing is just to for universities at the very top level to increase um, intellectual diversity, and then that will take care of some of the social problems. Um, but is there a you, pipeline problem? Because we just got through saying that the people who go into academia are much more likely to be from academic families themselves and probably left leading. I think that I, I think the problems build on each other. There is a pipeline problem too. You're you're right that that's a, that's sort of a separate problem, but I think it feeds into into the monoculture that academia becomes. So whatever you can do to uh, chip away at the monoculture um, is better. Yeah. And I do think that, you know, innately I feel, and maybe this is to- me, me being, uh, and you correct me if you think that I'm being, uh, that I'm totally off base here, but it, it feels to me that, that liberal intellectuals in particular are just very, so, so far removed from normal people, you know, and, and the struggles of normal people. And I don't know why this is happening. And maybe it, it just feels to me that that's, that's more so the case with liberal intellectuals mm. and with conservative You mean as opposed to William F. Buckley, who is very much in touch with the common man. <laughs> I think you're onto something. Okay. That, so this is one of my weirder ideas, but I do feel like it, it's useful to have some kind of, uh, national service, you know, and maybe the military is the only way to go about it, but some, some sort of, some vehicle in which people from across class divides are forced to spend time with each other um, and get to know each other and see the kind of, of oh, lives yeah. they lead. But how, but that like, yeah, I don't, but it, it would, 
it would eat itself, right? Because right away it would there would be a sorting process. Like if everybody had to join AmeriCorps or something like that, mm-hmm. there would there would be the elite people who did the elite AmeriCorps stuff and the hoi polloi doing the other stuff. Is this just a sort of natural human uh, mechanism? People just gonna they're going to get sort out into the classes that they instinctively. I mean, of course, they, they, of course, they we do, to. but I think that's what it, to to the extent that that uh, you know the 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 government or or like broader institutions at the top want to um, either either facilitate those classes come together or just to put. Um, you make it a little bit more difficult for people to divide that cleanly and evenly. Yeah. I think it makes sense to institute some kind of national, some program that would, that would force people in these different classes to see each, to see each other. I mean, I, I've harked on about this for, often and I, I can't help but go back to it. But I think that my experience with growing up the way that I grew up with where I was gr- growing up, um, I feel I have a view of class and of, what America looks like that, you know, the, the kinds of people that I spend time with now just can't relate to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's just an ongoing frustration. And it, it, you know, every time I, I log into Twitter and I see what, what, you know, the people who are writing everything and thinking everything are thinking about and talking about and what, what they're obsessed with. Um, it makes me feel as if there are just two different Americas. Yeah, no, Absolutely. I mean, I, I uh, moved to Nebraska when I was 30 for no particular reason. And I won't go into great detail here because I've written about this a lot, but yeah, um, it was, I, I had been, I was extremely provincial in that New York kind of way. I was like a, you know, low rent Carrie Bradshaw type. And uh, yeah, I moved to Lincoln, Nebraska and it was, everybody was all mixed together. Now everybody was white. I mean, that's the thing is that, I, you know, you can't say, well, I live in New York City and, uh, you know, it's only rich people here or uh, upper middle class people here. Yeah. If you're only counting the white people, that's true. I mean, mm-hmm. you're surrounded by all sorts of people if you, you know, actually can see people of other races. But yeah, I, it was um, I, I'm embarrassed to say it was really mind blowing to me um, when I when I moved to, to Lincoln, like there would be there was this sort of bar in town and. You know, it's a big city. It's not like it's a small town, but you know, you would see there would be like factory workers hanging out with you know judges and lawyers and and everyone kind of mixed mixed up together. Um, and you know, not all the time. I'm not saying that these people had dinner parties with one another, but there was definitely because it was a smaller community, um, you couldn't you couldn't sort of self segregate as much as as you can in big cities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, well, I think this should be your next nonprofit venture, um, forced, forced intermingling <laughs> with other classes. You know, I, I do think anyone who's wanting to be, you know, anyone who is in a position of power should make an effort to try and spend some real time forced, you know, in, in a situation where, where they have to interact meaningfully and at length uh, with people of different social classes. I mean, it's, so it's kind of this problem that, that you see in the nonprofit world where the kinds of people who give, you know, there are people writing, who are writing big checks who are really running the nonprofit world. Um, and of course are, it's wonderful that we get, we have these people who care to give and, um, you know, with their, with open hearts and want to make meaningful change in the world. But 
if they don't know what you know people on the ground really need, um, they're going to inevitably put their focus in causes that are really irrelevant right um, to the average person. But you know, it, and and then even if they if you just want to give money to a social cause, that even then they'll focus on social causes that themselves are irrelevant or even um, causes that that the 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 average person that they want to help um, would think of as harmful to them. Right. Yeah. Like, I mean, and, and the, the obvious example here is the, the dismantling, defunding, whatever the police um, lefty kind of, yeah. uh, you know, this slogan, whatever, but it's, but it's actually real. Some people are working towards that kind of thing where, you know, minority, mar- you know, the, the same marginalized communities that they want to help are like, wait, no, we like, I know. The are they really working towards <laughs> like, that? This is the thing. Like are how many people really, think that we should abolish the police i mean defund is what i mean i know defund is not the same as abolish i know maybe reallocate funds but is this just like a straw man or are people i don't think it's a straw man yeah i think i i think people really think this and i think there's there's been pressure in police departments all over all over the country um from you know sure small activist groups but it's sufficient that we've seen spikes in crime that are related, um, and you know, not a, lot, not a lot of people are willing to have this kind of conversation. Um, but I think the bigger problem is that if you once you have this huge disconnect between the people who are giving the funds, the people who uh, and and the people that they're trying to help, you will inevitably get some weird shit going on. You know, even if yeah. it even if there isn't uh, this ideology of wokeism or whatever that's right. that's really messing things up. Like I, I remember. Um, you know, I remember having a conversation with uh, uh, this couple. Uh, don't uh, who, who and I was hoping that they would write me a check. Um, at the end, it was a lunch or dinner or something, um, and they were just lovely people, um, just so nice and um, really caring and listening and, and you know empathetic and everything. Um, I remember they tell they told me that um, they met while they were both working on a charity that taught poor kids how to sail. (laughs) And I thought that was a joke for the (laughs) longest time. I was like, this has to be, this was a joke that they, it's a a good joke. It's actually a very good joke. joke. It's a very good joke. And then, and then I like looked it up (laughs) and this is real. There are, there's more than one group um, that uh, are you know pr- providing opportunities for poor yeah. kids to to learn the skill that they will never need. You know there are multiple nonprofits that do this, <laughs> and there's tons of people who are giving yeah. money. If they're gonna do something like that, they should teach poor. I- I'm not joking, actually. They should teach poor kids how to play golf and how to play tennis <laughs> and how to ski because those are things that you need for networking. Conceivably, well, that that can help you in business. Uh, I mean, sailing. Not oh so my much. god! But it it was just I can't. I'm, and I'm looking at these, you know, descriptions of their programs of these of these nonprofits that, that that do this, and it just it's blowing my mind. You know, it's like, oh hey, you know, Alejandro, like sorry, your grandma doesn't have money to buy her arthritis medicine, but the sailing exercise will teach you self esteem. You know, like what? <laughs> what? <laughs> Resilience. Yeah. Uh, um that's amazing all right well i i I can't talk that (laughs) 
Uh, should we move on? This is uh, yeah, this is yeah. a great yeah. This is a great topic. Um, all right. Is there anything else on this? Um, no, I think we're done. I, I th- this went on for way longer than I thought it would. No, I like it, but it's good. And I actually I think that this this question of the conservative intellectual is something we could come back to because Jordan Peterson right is arguably a conservative intellectual now many people would not say would say he's not an intellectual and some people would say he's not conservative I, but he you know it's it's interesting because this was sort of one of the foundations of our podcast like we were the one of the foundational questions is why is there not a female jordan peterson and uh anyway maybe mm-hmm, he's a conservative mm-hmm. intellectual yeah or, we should come was. back to it we should yeah. come back to it because i think i i've had this discussion with a lot of people including you know uh, my my conservative friends who are very smart, like what's going on? Why aren't there? Why is the bench so shallow? Well, because being an intellectual doesn't pay very well, and conservative people like to go where the money is. I mean, why are there mm. not more liberal, uh, you know, people in finance? Huh. I yeah, that I'm, might be. I mean, that might be part of it. Um, I definitely think that there's also a personality difference that, you know, the, yes. the, the, the liberal personality and the conservative personality, but the liberal personality is supposed to be or was traditionally up until now, um, you know, open minded, uh, curious. Um, and I think that that opens up uh, the, the pathway of, you know, let's figure things out. Let's let's do research. Right. Um, I don't know. But I think this is a this is a. This is a question that we can probably discuss. I think we should have maybe a conservative on. I also it. think I wonder too if it's easier to be a, a conservative intellectual if you're not a white man, because mm. like if you're a, I can think of some black conservative intellectuals, mm-hmm. uh, like Thomas Sewell. I can think of, and I can think of, I feel like I can think of some female conservative intellectuals. Um, mm. So if you have like one little thing that kind of takes the edge off maybe you will rise. I don't know. This is interesting. Mm-hmm. Or you'll be tolerated. Yeah. Or, you know, you'll, yeah, mm-hmm. you can, you can I had some conservative professors in college. Um, yeah. Just a few, but they hit it. <laughs> right. <laughs> I had one professor that, that went out of his way to hide it, that, that he was conservative and uh, people loved him. The, you know, the entire class loved him. The, especially, the guys wanted to be him. And, and he was kind of like young and mm. um, more attractive than, you know, the other professors. And he would, you know, it, it looked like he worked out. That's really the question. Like, who's hotter, liberals or conservatives? <laughs> um, well, this professor was pretty attractive, I thought. Um, and he, he, he went out of his way to hide his political affiliations. He didn't make it clear from, you know, from the class was on polling and uh like political polling and he <laughs> not <laughs> it was pole such dancing <laughs> it was such a boring <laughs> it was a boring class but he made it interesting and you know he was a fun guy and and at the end people asked like who like what are your thoughts about all this and he just said uh look me up and we looked him up and you know he wow spent some time see now they would be looking him Bush. up <laughs> they would be looking him up during the class on their phones while he's talking that's right Ugh. uh well back, i mean back then we had we had laptops. I'm not that. I'm I'm still pretty young. I know, but had, still, had... it's really bad. No, I mean, I've gone. In, I have gone in to talk to classes, and uh, as like a guest speaker, and the kids are just all sitting there googling me on their phones, like Uh-oh. immediately as I'm talking, and then yeah, it's just, it's uh, it's yeah, it's not not a good way to go through life. Okay, all right. Well, speaking of pole dancing, uh, polling, 
and we're going to make a great transition here. I know that you want That was a great. You know, know you, you almost did it. Pull, we're going to talk about sex work. <laughs> Because it's a very, really, you know, being an academic and being a sex worker are very close, very close. It's it's a very fine line. And you could easily, you could easily um, kind of just fall into the other category, especially if you are like in sociology. Actually, let's, you could be a sex worker and uh, write a certain kind of uh, dissertation. And I think you could write your ticket in academia if you were mm. like in gender studies or oh yeah 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 um, for sure for sure sex work studies department yeah, yeah. okay um great so transition why did you want to talk about porn um why did we want to talk about it we, i think it was your idea i, mean, <laughs> I think it, actually I, I i'm just going along with it yeah well oh there was a piece there was a piece uh, uh in wesley yang's Substack. Yeah, there was a piece in Wesley Yang's Substack, which which the piece itself is in itself fascinating, and it's about this book um, that we definitely want to get into at some point on this podcast, um, which was uh, this what was the book called? Um, um, the case against a sexual revolution. Yeah, actually, sorry, I had this pulled up. Um, um, oh. Yeah, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. Um, it, it was the book that uh, Wesley Yang, uh, on Wesley Yang's Substack, um, the writer Emma Collins uh, reviewed. Yes, and um, Louise, the book was interesting. Louise the Perry is, sorry, mm-hmm. Louise Perry is the author of The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Emma Collins wrote the review yes. on Wesley Yang's Substack. Um, but we're not going to cover any of that. Um, we read the, read the piece. It was very interesting. The book seems very interesting. Um, she was actually, um, Louise Perry was someone that, that several people recommended to us when I tweeted about, you know, uh, who should we have on to discuss porn? To talk about, yeah, um, talk about it. That tweet got a lot of engagement. That, that did. really had a lot. People had a lot of suggestions about who yeah. we should have on to talk about porn. And, and the way that I phrased the tweet was just, you know, I, we are open to anyone who's interesting and insightful, you know, pro-porn, anti-porn, ambivalent pro, yeah. uh, you know, it, 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 we're we're open to all 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 sorts. Um, and I also added that I would prefer. Uh, a male um <laughs> uh, uh, you know just because there's two of us already we can um right we can we can well, also because them. we're talking about yeah because some of the things that came up in this piece i think specifically had to do with how um just the, mm-hmm. the the ubiquity of porn has affected uh men and their sex lives yeah yeah so the so what we're how we got onto the porn thing the the Peace wasn't really about porn. Um, the book is kind of about porn, but it's also about a bunch of other things. But there was a whole common thread um, that was so fascinating. And should I should I read a little bit of this? Yeah. Um, of thwaps? I don't have music um, in the background this week, but yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, well, so the, the a user um, said... Uh, I'm a man in his late 20s. We're the very last group that did not have easy smartphone and internet access at a young age. Our exposure to porn at a young age was limited to Cinemax and HBO softcore. After our parents went to bed, still nearly every other guy I know has acknowledged that porn has had an overall negative impact on their relationship to sex, yet we are almost universally regular users. In my generation, we have record high rates of body dysphoria relating to penis size and erectile sexual dysfunction that can be directly traced to porn use. 
I seriously worry about how this is going to affect kids who are currently coming of age, given that they have been exposed to hardcore anal gangbang videos before they have even had their first kiss. Um, there's no fucking way you can convince me that this is anything other than detrimental to a person's healthy sexual um, development. Um, I don't have an issue with pointing the abstract as sex can be a beautiful thing. It's the sheer amount, ease of access and content. That's the real issue. Um, so there was a whole discussion. Did we want to cover any other? Well, yeah. I mean, this guy had, first of all, I think he means, he means body dysmorphia. He doesn't mean dysphoria. I think people confuse these things, but he, yeah. yeah, he said, dys- he said um, dysphoria, dysphoria is everywhere uh, in another conversation, but yeah, dysmorphia is when you think that you're fat when you're not and that kind of thing. Mm. Um, yeah. And then he has another, the same guy has another comment just a little bit down where he says, Oh yeah, no. The the next guy responds, and they're they're basically suggesting that I mean, this he says if you're looking at men around my age, and what he says he's in his late twenties, um, that he thinks that ninety five percent of the time when they're masturbating, they're looking at porn. Like they cannot. He says if a man masturbates regularly. They are watching porn. Basically, no one uses their imagination to masturbate anymore. Are you surprised by this? Um, I, yeah, uh huh, yes. I, I, I mean, I, I don't think it's the case for men over a certain age. And I actually, uh, I, I asked, I, I asked a couple people about this, like what they thought was the age cutoff. It was like forty, you know, 30, 30 35, 40. Mm. certainly men older than 40, I think, can use their imaginations. I mean, maybe I'm giving them too much credit, but... I think you are. But also... <laughs> <laughs> okay. But, but, also, but also, there's probably some... Tr- I mean, we're talking 90 versus... 95% versus... 87 percent i don't think there there are huge differences but there are differences probably Mm -hmm. um and so so it's interesting because i once had a conversation with um and i won't i won't get into too much detail but with a with a male friend about pornography um and he he was sort of shocked by what i had to say about it which is not quite you know i'm ambivalent you know and i don't I generally think that maybe it's not it's not very healthy or not healthy for all of us or maybe even not healthy for most of us. Um, and, you know, and I, I said something like that to him and he was just like, wait a minute, you don't you don't watch you don't watch porn. And I was like, um, you know, I mean, not really, you know, and and uh, he was just so shocked by this so shocked. Wow. i mean we just we spent so much time clarifying and he was just he was like, wait a minute, not even like how many times a year, how many you know, he just couldn't wrap his head around it and then and then it became clear at some point in the conversation i realized that he thought when i said i don't watch porn that i don't masturbate like that's what he was thinking because to him they're exactly the same thing wow um and you know and it was it was so odd but it just clicked at one point and i said it and he was like wait a minute it's almost as if it didn't it hadn't occurred to him that you can have one without the other oh my gosh um yeah so so i'm not surprised but it's 95 percent i think it's, you are I think trad it's this gets back to the trad thing You're, this is like little house on the prairie style <laughs> masturbation when you I, don't yeah, need I, anything for my generation i think i think maybe maybe i am very uh very very trad but you know for your generation i think it'd be normal um 
but yeah, I, I, even the, wow. the 95% number, I think that's too, uh, that's too low. I think it's, ubiqu- I, I think it's 99, 98. Wow. I think it's, there's very few men who don't watch porn um, fairly regularly. So, I mean, do you have conversations with your female friends who are single and dating about how this has affected their dating lives and their sex lives? I should have more conversations about this, but I, I just, you know, I don't getting into other people's sex lives is just like a whole thing. <laughs> well, it doesn't have to be. Yeah. I, Cause I mean, again, I, this is something that I have not, this is not something I've been privy to like the whole choking thing. I remember mm-hmm. like when that, when people started talking about choking, I, I was like, where did this come from? And it didn't even actually occur to me that it was something that was in, that was in porn. I was just like that, like this was some kind of weird trend that was, <laughs> that was going around mm-hmm. um, having vaguely to do with auto with, with erotic asphyxiation. That's what I assumed was going on with the choking. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, like that's a pretty, you would have to be like pretty adept at that skill if you were trying to make your partner like, have some kind of erotic oxygen deprivation experience by choking them. So now I realize that that's not actually that I it's was, not that I was giving them too much credit. And that yeah, case. That, that's, I, I mean, it's everything about, um, and I, how old were you when you first encountered pornography? Um, well, I remember like seeing playboy magazine lying around, uh, you know, not out in the open, but you mm-hmm. know, like you would go to friend's house and maybe like their dad would have like, you know, like, Oh, my dad has a pile of playboys up here or something like that. Uh, <laughs> but again, I mean, you weren't, you were looking at, um, it, it just, it, it wasn't, it, it was, a, it was a special thing. Like it was, it was not the default. It was just like a thing. It, it, it occupied like a tiny, tiny percentage of your life space and your brain. So no, I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. That, and I mean, I, yeah, I don't um I don't like porn. I mean, I I don't judge it. So I don't care. Like I think it should be legal. I don't have any problem with it like as a, you know, concept, but personally I find it incredibly depressing. Mm. Like really yeah. really depressing and I don't want to look at it. Yeah. It it doesn't yeah, it certainly doesn't make me happy to think about, you know, that oh, this is a normal normal thing now. Um and I think maybe a lot of women, or more women feel this way than then are open about the fact that they feel this way. I think that there's, there was the, this uh, sex positive feminism um, that became fairly like when, when I was coming up, yeah. you know, it was, th- it was, this was the, the feminism. Feminism was extremely sex positive, um, pro porn, pro, you know, casual sex, pro, pro expressing sex yourself, yeah. pro sex work. Pro, yeah. And, and there, I don't think there's anything wrong with those individual, you know, I mean, I can argue about it, but um, it's just that that's what feminism was. And I didn't know any other kind of feminism um, until I got much, much older. Um, Yeah, I didn't know that there were anti-porn feminists and there was a whole war about it. You didn't associate feminism with like women's rights or like, you know... Well, of course, yes, e- women's right. I mean, uh, and, th- and things like that. E- oh no, I, I did, I did, but that was like you know that was the old guard, and this is this is and it, this was it, the it new to work that... to be done. Like, what mm-hmm. was the mm-hmm. like the idea was that we need to normalize sex work, or we need to we need to normalize, yeah, destigmatize uh, 
sexuality, but also specifically female sexuality, um, and you know, have conversa- open conversations about our bodies, and and it 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 didn't strike me necessarily as entirely wrong. Um, except it did, I always had this unease of, well, you know, I don't know how empowering this is to women. Um, (laughs) well, and it was, the thing is, it was just, it was presented as empowering. Like this will empower Mm -hmm. you. God damn it. Like Mm -hmm. that, that was always sort of what it looked like to me. Um, and again, then it gets into the ways that we're not allowed to have a conversation about how men and women are different and maybe women don't have, don't respond sexually to the same kinds of things that, that men do. Or feel empowered by the same kind of sexual acts. Um, right. And, and I think the, the consent focus that's, that's become like all the rage and, you know, consent, consent, consent. Um, affirmative consent. I think that's, it's almost like that, that this is a way for us to get back to more restrictive sexual norms. Mm. Um, you know what I mean? That, that, that sex can only take place in this and this and this and this such, this fashion. It's almost like a way of, of saying, wait a minute, we're a little bit too, this is a bit a little, this is a little too loose and, and, and we need, we need definitions and we need boundaries. Um, but, but they're just drawing them very differently. There's also a thing, I think, with consent where it's sort of like a way around getting people to do things that they wouldn't necessarily do. Christine Enby talks a lot about this in her new book, um, like the like the idea that if you consent to something, that's all you need to do. Like, I got her consent, right. so I don't necessarily need to make this pleasurable or integrate this into (laughs) the whatever experience came before like I don't know there's the consent almost sometimes could be perfunctory or like just part of the I don't know I'm not being very articulate here no but I I understand what you mean that there's this this focus on consent as the only important thing when it comes to sex and sexuality and outside of that so long as there's consent um everything is great and healthy uh so long as people want it um, which is new. That's right. a new way of looking at sex. Right, right. And are we supposed to believe that women actually get pleasure from a lot of these things? You know, maybe they do. I, but I, I, I presume, like, I, I would just like to be able to have the conversation that not all women do all the time. Um, or even if, you know... Um, even if they do like get get pleasure from like a certain sex act, for example, if that sex act is there alone and it doesn't lead to a meaningful relationship, you just sort of have the sex act and then you're left behind. A lot of women feel used in that context, um, and but there isn't the 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 language to speak about what just happened. So they frame it in terms of actually, I never consented to it in the first place, mm-hmm. and that's why I feel bad about it, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> Yeah, and then I it obviously goes into the whole hookup culture thing. The all of these discussions seem to be separate from the question of whether there's like a, a potential relationship in, with this encounter. Like it's the it's the the sex just sort of exists as, in its own as its own entity, and then like there's any any kind right. of like romantic element or whatever you want to would want to call it is like almost just moot or something yeah 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 and i think and i think those are very for for 
maybe not all men. I'm not going to speak for this is why it would be helpful to have a man here. And they, could, they could they could give us their male opinion. But I think men that, are always helpful. Like maybe we can have the man like lift move a piece of furniture while he's here too. Um, but it, it's uh, I think that there's two different conversations, which is just. Uh, sex and whether or not certain sex acts are degrading or not degrading or pleasurable or not pleasurable. And then the separate conversation of whether the sex is a part of a relationship. But I also think they come together in that certain sex acts uh, feel different when, you know, and, and, you know, psychically you can handle in different ways when they're happening in the context of the safety of a relationship. Yes. And, you know, the pressure that you might feel at a, at a, at a, in, in, in the kind of a hookup space. Yeah. And actually, one of the comments um, in, in this comment thread addressed that, like talking about how a lot of men have these fantasies, men who are married, and they would never, um, they, they would never want, they would never even want to do these things with their wives. Like, hmm. you know, this guy mm-hmm. says, I've talked to many women friends maybe this is a woman, I don't know, in whose marriage is porn is a problem. Um, And it seems that for many men, fulfilling these desires with their wives is complicated. I sympathize sexual communications can be very difficult. So they go the easy route and use pretend fantasy women. Wives are not stupid and know that this is happening. And there's nothing that makes a woman feel smaller and less desirable than the idea that her husband would rather masturbate to a set of fake tics, fake tits, indulge in weird kink, than be intimate with her. Um... Is that yeah. true for you? Like, do you feel like, I mean, do you think some, some women think watching porn is cheating? No. Yeah. No. Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> um, no. I mean, I, I think you have to, yeah, that's, you, you can't be like that. Um, but I, you know, I do know a lot of people, I mean, who deal with porn addiction. Mm-hmm. I know women who have been in relationships with men who it later comes out that the guy is addicted to porn. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it does, it increasingly seems to be a problem. I mean, I think there's, there's evidence that there's erectile dysfunction is, mm-hmm. you know, stratospherically on the rise because uh, in all, young men, yeah. Too. in young men. Right. Exactly. Um, because they can't get it up with like a normal girl, normal woman. Um, and that just must be terrible. I mean, and this just gets back to this whole, like kind of disembodied nature of life. Like everybody the, 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 you know, there's we walk around in our physical selves, but most of our mental space is taken up with like avatars and fake mm-hmm. porn actors, mm-hmm. air filters, you know, mm-hmm. Instagram filters, and just visual images that are fake. Right. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. I think that that just the, one of the many ways, right, that technology fosters alienation from normal human relationships and 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 substituting real human interaction for these yeah i mean i think a lot of people don't want to bother i mean i i hear from a lot of people that they would really just rather stay home and watch porn than go out than bother to go out on a date yeah 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 and i i think that there's something to that and that's a neglected point neglected point which is it's not just that uh that that you know porn is somehow seducing these people and now they don't want to be in real relationships anymore because they've spent all their energies um, in pornography. I think that might be part of it for sure with with some of these some of these people. But I think for others, it's 
I don't want to engage with the real world because the real world is work. The real world is messy. The wor- yeah. real world doesn't have guaranteed results, um, but pornography does. Right. Well, you know how it's going to end. You know how literally, it's yeah. You <laughs> yeah. can you control the experience, right? right? And and um, you know, and and I think that you know, human relationships can't compete with this, you know, super stimulus. No, I know, and I've also noticed a lot of people blame this kind of behavior on the pandemic. I've been hearing more and more like, well, this, you know, during the pandemic, I certainly couldn't go out. I mean, we couldn't go. I couldn't possibly get into a real relationship. So I had to result. I had to resort to having this, you know, having FaceTime sex with this guy that I met. And it's like, I don't know. I mean, I know that people have different experiences and comfort levels with the pandemic, but I feel like this has become a very easy thing now to use as an excuse. I mean, maybe you could have said that I don't think the the pandemic might have been at at most something that increased a tendency that was happening like well, everywhere all the time it. anyway. Yeah, I mean it made it yeah, it it definitely right. But we were already doing this. You know, it yeah. was the the world is already shifting in this direction. Um it porn is just this extension of it. Um you know, and it it just I don't know what the long-term consequences are going to be. And I I'm often suspicious of people who say so there are people who say that there's a net positive to pornography use that there's you know fewer sexual assaults and 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 um all, hmm. all these like i mean maybe i think that is that is true um i haven't looked too deeply into the research there but um that that there are there are positive benefits um you know, not including, you know, obviously the orgasm, which is presumably the most positive um, benefit for the individual. Um, but but that there there that that it might even be a net positive. So that's one thing. And then there's a net negative people. Uh, what I find suspicious is, are the people who th- say that they think it doesn't have much of an effect, which that that's oh, the position no. that I think is crazy. Like that that's a position that I intuitively feel has to be wrong. Um, and profoundly wrong. Like it has an effect. We just don't know. We don't know maybe exactly the the form and shape of that effect. But uh, it. I find it impossible to to hold that. You know. I, I mean, this technology that's bringing in this that this enormous you know profound difference in how in how we're engaging sexually. Um, that. It, it, I find it impossible to believe yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, that, that's like saying that social media hasn't had an effect. Right. It profoundly but, has. But this is but this is so much deeper than that, right? This is like, psychologically, yeah. this is the, this is this the is fundamental. drive. Yes, exactly. exactly. <laughs> this is the drive. And, you know, we, we, there, there's, it's, it's interesting to me that there's so many conversations, like very open conversations about like other, you know, super stimuluses, right? Like super stimuli. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like, uh, you know, fast food, a lot of people make the fast food and porn analogy. And I think they're, they're fairly good um, and and inaccurate that that porn is um, to sex that uh, fast mm-hmm. food is to to food. Yeah. But so it's, well, we have that conversation about fast food. We we acknowledge, I think, without even a lot of discussion that that it's not fast food, and not it's great. a public health it's crisis. Great. Yeah, it's it's part of the public health crisis. You can engage, you can have fast food here and there. It won't kill you once or twice, but we recognize that the net effect of McDonald's existing is probably you know 
heart attacks and you know certain amounts of of you know deaths well, that would not have epidemic yes right right and and um a shift in how in how well, how we engage with food um as fast food has become super prevalent but beyond that even the more the the, the broader problem of injecting you know um, sugar into everything into bread into you know um, normal staples. Yeah, I uh, think that's a good analogy, actually, the fructose corn syrup thing. Like, th- it's as if the water has been poisoned mm-hmm. while we weren't looking. And right. it's affected us in ways that are, we haven't been perceptible yet, but are, are felt. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and we, when we have that conversation, we understand, okay, and we're able to say, okay, probably net negative, like probably a profound change and not great for us. And here are all these, uh, yeah, here are all these consequences that we need to address one way or the other. Um, but we don't have that conversation with porn. Um, it's either the sex positive, yay, porn thing, um, uh, uh, or, or the traditional radical feminists, radical well, feminists and, or, or yeah. religious people, right? right? Like there's religious people who are, this is sin. There's radical feminists who are saying this is exploitation and that's it. Those yeah. are the conversations. Well, I mean, and it, it, this is borne out by the responses we got on Twitter when you've sent that tweet. The people, a lot of people suggested that we have on um, porn actors mm-hmm. uh, to have this conversation. I mean, we it ran the gamut between the radical feminists, the sex workers themselves. You know, there was a little bit of that standpoint uh, epistemology going on. Like, well, you can't talk about porn unless you talk about people who make it. So. Better not yeah. talk about that. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's a little ridiculous. Um, I don't feel I need. I mean, I I feel like they they, they are the most biased party in <laughs> in the porn discussion. Um, you know, yeah, porn producers in yeah. general. But what kind of person do we want to have on? Because I feel like we we both feel like we want to. We would love to talk to a man who has you know has been affected by this, but is also insightful and has enough. Yeah, like somebody who isn't what I don't I guess what I don't gel well with is just the religious morality that uh, infuses a lot of the conversations that come from the poor negative space, I guess, Um, you know. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So I I just don't don't react that well to it because I don't hold those same, you know, beliefs about the world to be true. So it's hard for me to follow that that conversation um i'd like to talk about uh our development our mental development our you know sexual development um what it does to us psychologically how it impacts human relationships um from somebody who can be who can understand both aspects of it Mm -hmm. um so yeah i I, that's that's what i'm hoping for and we're still looking for that person because it is (laughs) we'll we'll always be looking for that mr mr right for this conversation Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, and just the, yeah, I mean, we can wrap this up, but I, yeah, just the, the age that kids are exposed to it now. I mean, I hear this again and again, there are seven, eight years old. And if that's, if you're seeing that kind of thing when you're that age, I can imagine that you would just never want to have sex ever. Like you'd yeah, be terrified of it and repulsed. I think the first time I was exposed to porn and was not by my, I, somebody showed it to me. Um, I was in fifth grade. I don't know how old I was exactly but how old how older well like you're like 10 yeah 10 or 11 yeah yeah and I was scared of it it scared me um I was also very religious so um 
I had to like pray about it later. Um, but, <laughs> um, so, uh, it was scary to me, uh, but I can imagine that if you're like a young boy who is not like held back by those things necessarily, that you just fall right into it. And it's so accessible. My parents had no idea. My, my parents did not understand the internet. They did not understand computers. I did. <laughs> um, <laughs> there was, there were no, you know, there were no, um, adult content filters in my house um and if my parents had tried to put anything like that on the computer i would have disabled it immediately because i knew so much more than they did uh um like i could have you know like i just they had no idea what they were doing and i did and and i think we're always going to that's always going to be uh you know the 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 way that this goes that you have adults who are trying to put content filters and children who understand that there are other ways to get around it and then do get around it. So I don't think, I I don't know what we can do in terms of exposure to kids at extremely young ages. I, uh, I think it's a huge problem and it's one thing to have the discussion about how this, how porn use, you know, in, in moderate doses, whatever impacts adults, adult men and women. Um, And it's a totally different conversation when we're talking about developing young minds who have, you know, truly never had a kiss, never held hands with a person of the opposite sex who are watching like gangbangs, you know, and, yeah. And so many of these, um, uh, uh, porn addiction forums i've browsed um them time to time just out of curiosity and what what is going on um but the, the, many of them are young and a lot of them say that they've been addicted since they were really young like baby faced mm. little babies mm. you know like f- six years old is when i first saw uh porn uh, internet porn and they're right? addicted not even to like, it yeah. like but like are like sexually aroused by it at that age I guess so. I think you can. I think you can have sexual arousal at fairly young ages, even before yeah. like full puberty. With it, but it's not. You don't really. You're not connecting it to. It's just kind of like instinctive. Yeah, yeah I don't know. I don't know exactly primal. what happens yeah. to it. But yeah, but 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 you can get you can get it. I think Kanye West talked about it. Um, I remember a, a little while ago he was talking about how he's been uh, addicted since he was five years old or something. Um, fairly young. Uh, so wow. there are these boys who see it. They don't know what they don't know what exactly they're seeing, but they're so enticed by it they can't look away, and it warps the way that they uh, that they understand sex. And it's I, I think it's impossible to deny that there isn't a population wide desensitization, or is it desensitization? Uh, yeah, desensitization yeah. that's that's happening. Clearly, that's happening because you see, you know, you, you can go on to. Uh, a pornography website today and you know the same website 10 years ago was had a very different um you know overall like average the average content was very different than what you would see now in right. terms of just how hardcore it is mm-hmm. um and i remember back when i was much younger and was first exposed to it that was a to- that was totally different stuff that was that was what today we would call super you know ver- very very soft core right um pornography but that w- that was the hardcore back then and you know, it keeps getting more and more bizarre and, you know, creepy and weird. And it just gets, it's just more and more taboos that we need to break. And that's because, that's because clearly we're getting desensitized. Yeah, no, it's like the pain, the, right. You need to increase the dosage of the pain medicine, right? 
Like you're, right. uh, you got, or, yeah. or, you know, if you're having sugar in all of your food right. and it's always right. there, then a strawberry isn't going to taste very right. sweet. So, you, but if, once you stop cutting, when you cut out sugar from your life entirely, you'll be astounded by how sweet normal fruits begin to taste. That's your brain adjusting to an experience. Yeah. I wonder if there's any kind of like control group or like, you know, kids it's who impossible are, kids who are homeschooled. I don't know. Or like kids who are like, you know, Amish like, kids, uh, like trad. I don't know. Like the kids of the trad uh, while the trad wife moms are like doing their Instagram. Maybe that maybe yeah. the kids are not allowed to go on screens and they have no experience of this at all. Yeah. Like the, the Amish or I bet, I bet the Amish are like <laughs> hiding in the barn looking at their phone. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So you do have to have, you got to get like old order Amish. They don't have phones. They don't have, or, or like Orthodox. I wonder people like in Orthodox Jewish communities. Um, yeah. And they can be the, they're the only control group, but I mean, what a, what a control group too. Right. And I those mean, guys go to prostitutes all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, all right. Well, we could talk about this forever, but um, we've been so going. yeah. We're gonna, but we're gonna yeah. continue this conversation. Yeah, is what we're trying yeah. to say is that this was we, we want to have the conversation. We think it's very interesting. Um, so if you can think of someone, um, you would recommend somebody who is who's interesting. Doesn't have to be a man. We were just we're kidding about that a little bit, but yeah, you know, it's 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 good to get the male perspective. We think because we're we're opining a lot about. Well, here's what's happening to men. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, re- I realize this is going to, we're going to be, uh, we, might, we might get in trouble about that. But yeah, um, I would love to have a conversation about that. All right. Well, should we um, entice, we're going to have uh, some bonus content, but should we tell people what it is? So if they're not, if they're not subs- paying subscribers, they are moved to pay. Sure. <laughs> we're going to have porn more porn <laughs> we're gonna have audio porn for the bonus content and so you have to pay it's behind the paywall well uh, if they if that doesn't move them <laughs> i don't know what i think it should be like the howard stern show you should bring strippers on uh the podcast well, like i don't understand strippers. this what that was so weird that that, that this was a radio show i thought it was hilarious have... but that's why it was so great it was so funny because it was commenting on just the silliness of of strippers anyway like that he would have them in the rate in the on the radio show like you would just be like oh wow you're so hot and then like there would be the music i was i it was brilliant uh yeah okay uh, we can do that we've uh there were some <laughs> porn stars recommended to us so that's um uh, they're gonna show up we're gonna be like uh, you yeah, are gonna, very hot right well just we're gonna <laughs> patch them through on the on the audio line and uh yeah so right so we're, we're open to that all right well um Okay, I can't remember what we said we were going to talk about in the bonus content. Do you? Um, why everyone is obsessed with gender. Oh, that's right. Or why, why we are obsessed, why we're obsessed and why with isn't why, everyone else. Yeah, why can't we get off the topic of gender ideology? That's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so um, stay tuned for that if you're a paid subscriber. Otherwise, um, we'll see you next week. for now. We'll see you next week. Thank you. Take care, everyone. <laughs> Dating a porn star Isn't all roses She leaves you home On a Saturday night You can go crazy With thoughts and soul